Let's pray together. Lord, we've sung, changed the atmosphere, and Lord, we pray that spiritual oxygen would please flow into our lives. We need it, Lord, especially in these times we feel a need of it, of your spiritual oxygen of love, light, and life. Bring those to us in this really challenging Sermon on the Mount and in this challenging part of it. Lord, help us to remember your grace and your mercy if we feel a little unsettled. Thank you that they are there, that you do this with us and with each one of us in your body as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We live in an age of anxiety. It was W.H. Auden, the poet famous for Stop All the Clocks, who first called it that back there in 1947. But even if he hadn't, we'd know it, because anxiety is rife. Indeed, we'd consider it almost normal. There's a wonderful scene in the film Bridge of Spies that illustrates this very thing. The character Rudolf Abel, played here by Mark Rylance, is a Russian spy. And the John Donovan character, played by Tom Hanks, is the lawyer trying to defend him. After a grueling session in the courtroom, John turns to Rudolf, who has kept calm throughout. Do you never worry? And Rudolf's response is, would it help? What is wrong with this man that he isn't worried when he jolly well should be? We each, of course, have a different threshold for anxiety, and this man obviously has quite a high one, and that's the reason we should not judge one another in this regard. For some, the slightest thing triggers a massive anxiety attack. Others serenely wend their way through life with barely an anxious thought. It either could be a sign of either strong or weak faith. Now, I'm sure we've all heard of the role of lie detectors in the criminal justice system, and maybe in other contexts as well. They supposedly catch people in lies, but in reality, they measure anxiety. That tightening up in our body when we know we're about to tell a lie. But maybe we didn't realize that anxiety itself is a lie detector. Let's imagine... We're in church worshiping God, rejoicing in his greatness, praising him for his love, and yet in the back of our minds, something else is churning away. The bill you don't know how to pay, that fixed rate mortgage that's about to end. Your lips, they're singing good and beautiful words, but your mind and heart is occupied elsewhere. Anxiety tells the truth. It's telling you that all that stuff you're saying and singing about God actually is not true for you at that moment. And in the life of faith, anxiety can perform a useful function. It shows us where our faith is. And I'm not saying the total absence of it means we have great faith or that one anxious thought can destroy our faith, but that through it we can discern something about our level of faith. Indeed, doesn't Jesus do that just here in our gospel reading? Therefore, I tell you, 
Don't worry about your life. And then at the end of that passage, he chastises them for worrying and failing to trust in God's goodness. Oh, you of little faith. But Jesus doesn't just say, don't worry, be happy. He appeals to our mind and to our imagination. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. Look, consider, think about these things, he's saying. They don't do anything of the things you wear yourselves out doing, desperately trying to secure your lives. Now, that's okay for a bird or a lily, you might be thinking. Really, Jesus, the birds of the air? But, uh, and get real, Jesus. I mean, have you seen my mortgage payments recently? And I'd agree, that only takes us so far. But Jesus doesn't stop there, you see. He insists we think more deeply and employs a couple more human arguments. First of all, can any of you by worrying add an hour to your life? Answer, of course not. And then at the end of the passage, he makes a final appeal. Please stop worrying about tomorrow. You've got enough to worry about today. Now, that's a really human argument, except you shouldn't really worry about the stuff for today either. So Jesus takes us through this process of reasoning and imagining that can give us some perspective on anxiety. Indeed, how often, if we look back, do we see that most of our worries come to nothing? Reminds me of the man who on his deathbed made this confession. I've had a lot of trouble in my life, and most of it never happened. But if Jesus appeals to creation and then appeals to our common sense, the bedrock of all these appeals is that behind it all, God knows we need all these things, food, drink, clothing, and God cares about us. There's an echo of that in 1 Peter, isn't there? Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. And God values us much more than these other things that are so provided for, the lilies and the sparrows. Therefore, hence, it follows. He will make sure you have those things. O ye of a little bit more faith now. You see, there's an inverse relationship to an anxiety and faith, which makes sense because most anxiety is fueled by fear, fear that we won't have enough, fear of the future, fear for our health. The pagans, fueled by all that fear, filled with anxiety, run after, strive for, chase down all those things, Jesus says, and your Father knows you need them. Reflect on this, Jesus is saying, and your faith will grow and your anxieties reduce. Once again, I want to emphasize it's a journey we're all on. Everyone here, and I include myself, gets anxious. But one step in the right direction is to trust God. Not just with that spiritual part of our life, but with the whole of our life. And there's a whole other conversation to be had about anxiety disorders and mental health. And I'm not saying if you trust Jesus, any diagnosed or undiagnosed anxiety disorder will disappear. Please get the help you need if, that, if you're in that position. But in general, trust is the way to reduce anxiety. And that's the first part of Jesus' answer here. Trust in God, for he cares for you. Second part is given in, here in verse 33. Very, very well-known verse, set, uh, chorus set to that. came around in the 70s, which I just about remember. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, if you remember that one, and his righteousness. Make your priority God and his kingdom. 
What is the kingdom? It's the place where God rules, of course, where his will is done, and we've just heard, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. It's the realm of right relationships. Earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talked about sorting out our relationships with others. That includes when we hurt others, when others hurt us. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive others when they sin against us. So that's, so the kingdom is more than our relationship with God. And that word righteousness more than our personal standing with God. For it has shades of uh, meaning including justice. And so right relationship to God our King and right relationships with our brothers and sisters too. But let's come back to that little word first. It's like the little word all in love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Loving God with most of your heart, probably not too difficult. Mind you, if you looked into the eyes of your husband and wife and said, darling, I love you with most of my heart, you might find yourself in a bit of trouble. But that aside, putting the kingdom second is likewise not too hard. First means before everything and anything else. The kingdom gets to make the decisions. This is a kind of very, very scary loyalty that is total and undivided. And the problem comes when our loyalties are divided. Anxiety, and Greek word for that, sort of has this connotation of dividing. Anxiety divides us. It divides our attention, it divides our energies. And so seeking the kingdom, putting that first, helps free us from anxiety. And as we do it, other things become less important. In particular, a lot of things that cause us a great deal of anxiety. So that's the second part, seek God and his kingdom and be totally loyal to God. Which brings us to that second bit of the reading, um, or the other part of our reading in the first section, here Jesus lays out this undivided loyalty in the well-known phrase, you can't serve God and mammon, or in some translations, money. It's really money as a god or an idol. And here the church in the West, I think it's been safe to say, has tried really hard to worship both God and mammon. And... Uh, I'm not sure we've succeeded, but we have tried to do that. But Jesus here singles out mammon or money as the main competitor for our loyalty and a major source of anxiety as well. So how can we free ourselves from its seductive power? First of all, by not storing up treasures on earth. But again, Jesus doesn't just say, stop storing up treasures on earth and stops, and that's it. He appeals to our reason and our imagination again. Here in this image, we see the dragon Smog from Tolkien's The Hobbit curled up on a mountain of gold. We might see treasure, but the eye of faith sees trouble. Trouble because that mountain of gold has to be guarded. Indeed, the dragon here is doing that, isn't he? Treasure on earth can be stolen, Jesus reminds us. Indeed, think how much time and money is spent by us all on keeping our stuff safe. Locks on doors, passwords and two-factor authentications on our online bank accounts. Storing up stuff has a cost. 
cost and anxiety. Can I keep it safe? Who's uh, stealing it now? How do I stop it that, uh, as well breaking? As Jesus goes on to say, moth and rust, breaking, wearing out, falling apart. How can I stop that? Trying to make our lives secure by doing that, by storing up treasures on earth is a fool's errand. Uh, because that so-called security is actually very insecure, fundamentally so. Indeed, we may remember that parable in Luke's gospel, the parable of the rich fool who stores up treasure in bigger and bigger barns until Jesus calls time on him, and it's his time to die. And death takes not just him, but all that he's treasured and built up. It's, of course, it's given to someone else. Jesus calls that person a fool, a fool because he stored up for himself treasures on earth and wasn't rich towards God. The other half of what Jesus teaches here on freeing ourselves from the clutches of mammon is a sort of mirror image of that, is store up treasures in heaven. Storing up treasures in heaven to a Jewish audience probably meant giving to the poor. Indeed, in Luke's gospel, where we have a very similar set of passages to the Sermon on the Mount, the link is very strong indeed. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, Luke says. Make purses for yourselves that don't wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven. But I'm sure it also includes other ways of being rich towards God. After all, if we think this is all about money, then hasn't mammon already won, in a sense? No, it's time, energy, friendship, talent, skills, peacemaking, fighting injustice, and any other good we might do, and by so doing, store up treasures in heaven and become rich towards God. But still, the idea of giving things away is not easy for us. We don't like that because, of course, who knows what we might need tomorrow that we give away today. Anxiety makes us cling to our precious possessions. It's mine. I worked for it. I can do what I like with it. No one else can have it. We may scream, but then who or what is in control? Do we possess those things or do they possess us? Stop storing up treasures on earth, Jesus says, and then in response to the inevitable anxiety that results from that, if I don't do that, how will I live? Jesus says, trust God. Seek first the kingdom. Give it away. Jesus packs a lot in here, and I've skipped over the little saying he gives about the eyes, um, probably because no one's quite sure what he means by this, but it's usually translated, if your eye is good, then your body is full of light. If your eye is bad, then it's in darkness. He's already talking about money in this passage, and so we could translate <clears throat> the good eye as a generous eye, always on the lookout for how it can meet others' needs. And the Greek translated good here literally means single, and so it also has that connotation of being an eye with a single focus on God, not trying to focus on both God and money at the same time. The bad eye, in contrast, is a covetous, greedy, roving eye, an eye looking out for itself and how it can accumulate more things. One brings the light of heaven, the other the darkness of a life blinded by greed. It's the same choice all the way through. Choose greed and serve money, store it up on earth, or choose generosity by serving God 
and store up treasures in heaven. Well, what does all this look like in a human life? St. Francis of Assisi, in his time, turned his world and his church upside down back there in the 13th and 12th centuries. But sadly, most of us remember him for preaching to the birds, and there is plenty of similar art like that expressing that. The son of a rich cloth merchant in Assisi, he became dissatisfied with his playboy lifestyle, and he felt called to reach out to the poorest in his society. It came to a head when he was forced to explain his behavior to the Bishop of Sisi because he'd been using his father's money to help the poor. Pay it all back, the bishop demanded. And what Francis did next perfectly illustrates his character. I'm not going to do this. He stripped off his clothes and stood before them all naked. And in so doing, Francis divested himself of his entire life to that point including everything his earthly father had given him. And from that time on, he invested his life totally in his father in heaven and made all his deposits there. I'm not advocating that precise way of putting the kingdom first, but it certainly would have spoken very loudly to his audience, I can assure you. Francis lived what he believed was the gospel life, according to the Sermon on, on the Mount, which for for him was one of voluntary poverty. And in doing so, he gave up all that the world offered him. And he lost his fear and anxiety and became free. Free to live and serve God and others. Free to be truly himself. Indeed, isn't the Sermon on the Mount about freedom? Freedom from cycles of violence and lust by loving our enemies and refusing to treat people as objects of lust. Freedom from the need for approval and the desire to make sure everyone knows how spiritual we really are by doing all those things in secret where only our heavenly Father sees. And then freedom from the power of money and its corrupting influence. Freedom to serve God, for as the Book of Common Prayer has it, to serve God is perfect freedom. And that's the freedom St. Francis knew and the freedom that awaits us as we let these words of Jesus settle deep in our hearts. Now, some of us may be called to a radical lifestyle like that of Francis, free from all earthly attachments and things, but all of us are invited to search our hearts and see where our treasure truly is. And this can all be summed up by one word, simplicity. Indeed, Richard Foster, some of you may have read this, wrote a book with the great title, The Freedom of Simplicity. The simplicity of trusting God to secure our lives and knowing that we are what we are, moment by moment, by his grace. The simplicity that comes from an undivided loyalty to God and from putting his kingdom first. A kingdom of love not ruled by anger or lust, and where forgiveness is a daily reality, and where we use things and love people and not the other way around. The simplicity of not storing up stuff on earth, but giving it away or making it available for others in need. A pithy way to sum all this up can be found in the words of Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Alka Indians in Ecuador, and I'll end with this. He says... He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose.
Amen. Would you please stand if you're able, and let's just wait on God for a minute or two. If you'd like, please hold your hands out in front of you and clench, clench them. Think of those things that you find hard to let go of. Those precious things. Holy Spirit, help us. Holy Spirit, free us. Gradually unclench our hands to hold them open. Father, help us to hold what we have lightly, knowing it's a gift from you, whatever it is, however we got it, it's a gift from you. Lord, help us to realize that it's in trust for your use in your kingdom. We thank you for it, grateful for enjoying it, but Lord, we know in the end we seek your kingdom first, and if that's to stay with us, that's great. If not, Lord, let's just let it go. Lord, let it bless someone else. Lord, there are plenty of others in this world who need things that we have or need our love and our prayers and our time. Lord, may we give freely of all of that because you have freely given to us that the world indeed might be blessed. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.